Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 158 today. Uh, we're going to be talking about a little bit of science news and alerts, like all the recent uh, archaeological um, findings and megalithic site findings and all that kind of stuff. Um, before we get started, why don't you head on over to Indra's web? And uh, I'm sure you've heard me mention it many times on this before, but go to indrasweb.org and sign up to get an alert. When the app goes live, which should be soon, um, it's literally an app dedicated to connecting open minds. So if you have some sort of theory or hypothesis, whether it be fringe or, um, you know, it's just we're just looking for rational discourse on there. So go check that out. Yeah, good friendly atmosphere to get those ideas out there. For sure, for sure. Um, And then head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash mindescapepodcast. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content and episodes. Um, And also, we have like five or six shirts left. So Mm -hmm. if you are interested in one of our Mind Escape t-shirts, which is a black t-shirt with our logo on the front uh, chest area, um, you can send me an email. Just go to our website under contact us and send me an email and uh, we'll set that up. Because I tried to do it through Patreon, but it's like a whole thing. So we, we already have the shirts ready to go. So again, just send me an email. We'll set it up. Um, and that's that's it. We tried to get this episode in, what was that, Friday? Yeah. And your, yep. pow- your power went out literally during the middle of the episode, which was weird because your, your, your background got all dark, but you were still talking and I could still hear you. So that was the weird. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I don't understand that, but I, I guess it gave us a couple of minutes to to chat before it all went. Completely. Yeah, it was it was weird. That kind of stuff happens, especially when you do a live show. So I mean, oh well, yeah, it, it wasn't even raining that hard. It, it was it was little wind and some rain, and then my I lost my power for twenty four hours. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, you've uh, you've lost it a few times here recently. They gotta fix that over there. Um, the gri- yeah, the grid I'm on is is obvious. Is so weak. Because I don't, our power will go out, but the, the all the neighbors like across the street they have power and stuff. So mm-hmm. we're on some kind of a little parcel that's just not the best, I guess. Because I we we seem to lose it every time something blows in. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're doing it now. So, uh, but yeah, I wanted I rounded up a bunch of um, articles from our Twitter page, our Twitter feed, things that we've talked about recently stuff recent news that's come out just having to do with uh ancient civilizations and archaeological finds and megalithic sites and all that kind of stuff so that's what we're going to be talking about here today and uh, let me pull that up all right so there's a nice little pick of uh stonehenge there all right so this was one that came up recently uh the headline read Atlantis and Michigan question mark. Um, so a team of non-scientist uh, Native American tribal citizens may have stumbled upon one of the most important Great Lake 
uh, Great Lakes ar- archaeological finds in recent years. Uh, the team was using a remotely operated underwater vehicle in the Straits of Mackinac uh, to check out an oil and natural gas pipeline when they discovered stones arranged in circular and linear patterns. Um, so, th- you know, they were doing just simple surveying, checking the stuff out, and then they stumbled upon, uh, you know, like a stone circle underwater uh, mm-hmm. or a formation that didn't look random. Um, and th- they found a decent of, amount of these, I think, in different like parts of the Great Lakes. So I think that there's been a couple in uh, Lake Huron as well, and there's one up in Traverse Bay that we've talked about before. Um, so the last time the Mackinac Straits were above uh, water was roughly 10,000 years ago um, at the end of the last Ice Age, which would have been roughly around the same time as uh, the Younger Dryas Impact, possibly. Um, in 2009, a team of archaeologists from the University of Michigan uh, discovered similar stone circles in Lake Huron near Alpena. Um, there have been previous reports of the Straits of Mackinac having underwater sites as well. So this was kind of like a new discovery and kind of not. I think, again, that there's been some suggestion that there are some of these stone circles and alignments and stuff underwater. But, I mean, I think I think the Great Lakes is probably the best opportunity to do some of these uh, underwater excavations because... I think that the ocean's probably just too rough, but I, I right. know some of the spots in the Great Lakes. I mean, we grew up in Michigan, so we know those lakes and, wa- and water better than most people. And I can tell you that, yeah, some of them are rough too. I know Lake Superior is one of the deepest Great Lakes, but there's also probably a lot of spots where it's somewhat shallow and they could probably get some divers and stuff down there and, and, and find some stuff. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about it for a while. I like to get my uh, Explorer hat on and go to some of these these locations on the land but if, if there's a some ancient uh stone structures on land there's got to be some stuff under the water i would think well <clears throat> i know michigan um you know it was through the end of the last ice age and the glaciers and everything and that created the great lakes and all that kind of stuff um you're right there has to be something if there was people even living remotely nearby there's got to be something there Mm -hmm. um and we're gonna there's another article we'll talk about later about the first peoples in america and how the clovis first uh paradigm has pretty much been shattered and there's even more evidence to um you know prove that wrong that we're going to get into here as well um, also, in 2007, an underwater archaeologist from Northwestern Michigan University discovered an underwater stone site in Grand Traverse Bay uh, in Lake Michigan. Uh, one of the stones has what appears to be a mastodon carved into it. So um, I can only find one picture, and I don't want to, you know, the whole copyright thing, but right. um, you can look online, and it does, <clears throat> the outline of it does look like a mastodon. It is. It could be, you know, a case of few people having pareidolia, but I looked at it. I, I don't think so. I think it, it does look like some sort of carving in there, which would be kind of cool, in my opinion, uh, for there to be a site where they're finding that kind of stuff there. I think um, what I was talking, where, where where was I telling you to go to, to film one of your shorts. Port, Port Sanilac. Oh yeah, Sanilac has some petroglyphs. You should, yeah, you should definitely go there and check that out. Well, that's not far at all for me. That's like an hour and ten minutes. Yeah, 
but I, I thought that this was a good one to start off. It's close to home. We've talked about this before. Actually, one of the first ideas, because we have been, well, before this whole thing went down here in the last seven, eight months, we were talking about trying to do a documentary and we were going over different uh, ideas. And one of the ones that we settled on was near-death experiences, having known some people personally that have had real near-death experiences and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we tossed around, didn't I tell you, like ancient Michigan, like let's do one on. Um, so that would be kind of a cool idea now that they're finding more stuff, if you were able to actually dive and find some more stuff. But I know you're not... You're not doing that kind of adventuring. I would actually... I would love to get certified in the diving. We were talking about the scuba stuff before and my sister's uh honeymoon in Thailand, they trained them in Lake uh Saint Clair, so Yeah, I don't think it's that crazy, but I do think that uh when it comes to this stuff, it's it's almost near impossible to find some other things. But that would be phenomenal if I if if I did come across something though. <laughs> Put us on the map, baby. <laughs> you, you grab it, you pull it up. They're like, uh, and you're going to jail. You're not allowed yeah. to touch that. I, undiscover- uh, I find some like UFO down there or something, you know? <laughs> you're straight to jail. Yeah, they, you broke the, the mastodon hoof off. and Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's that story. Let's keep an eye on that and see what happens. Uh, and I'm going to put all the articles, like the links to all the articles from all these stories down below after we're done with the video so you can check out these links and read the whole article. Some of them are scientific papers as well. So, Okay, this one just came out recently. Um, Ancient Mayan sophisticated water filters. Um, So a few multidisciplinary researchers from the University of Cincinnati have discovered sophisticated water filters at the ancient Mayan city of Tikal. Uh, the filter system at the Coriental Reservoir utilized the uh, minerals, crystal, crystalline quartz and zeolite. Uh, those same minerals are still used in water filters today. Um, the minerals that were mined, uh, the, the quartz and the zeolite, were mined roughly 18 miles northeast from Tikal at Bajo de Azúcar. Um, <clears throat> the, the filters would remove harmful microbes nitrogen-rich compounds, and heavy metals and other toxins found in the water. Um, this site in northern, uh, northern Guatemala was the first of its kind 2,000 years ago um, in the ancient New World. So I think in like Egypt and other places in like the Mideast uh, and stuff, they, they did have certain filters, but I think that this sophistication wasn't even seen till later in Europe, so from, from what I read in the article. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, just to think that two of the minerals that they use, the cor- the crystalline quartz and the zeolite, are still used today. I mean, I don't know what's... I have a water filter uh, in my fridge. I don't know what they use in it, but I could imagine that, that those are probably in there. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, don't they... I've seen stuff like survival shows, too, and what they tell you to do if you're stuck out in wilderness and you're there's no fresh, you know, fresh source or spring or anything... Um, you're supposed to like burn wood and then use the, the carbon charcoal, yeah, the charcoal and then make layers. So there's like pebble, you make like a pebble layer, a sand layer and like a charcoal layer layer and just run, just keep filtering it through that. And that supposedly filters out most of the stuff. So, but I know when you go hiking a lot, do you have just in case as like an emergency, like those like tablets or anything like that? No, because I'm with other people and we all bring a little water filter. Okay. 
they're, they've just been getting more, more, more advanced, lighter, and uh, they're pretty sweet though. Like the one I have bought is like sixty dollars. It's a little hand pump. Okay. Just pumps it pumps right through. I don't know exactly what it's going through, but yeah, you don't know what's in the material in there that's that it's being filtered through. Right. It looks like a gray stone, pretty much. Yeah, that's similar to you know you have you ever seen like the Brita? They yeah, these, I like, have little specks of stuff in there after mm-hmm. a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would imagine that it's just crazy to think that again back then that they knew. I mean, how 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 many trial and like how many people died from drinking gross water before they figured that out, or was it just like a luxury type thing? Yeah, and that's the other interesting thing is a lot of people would think because back then the water wouldn't be so polluted, but there's obviously bacteria and stuff living in the oh, water. Yeah. Everyone's like, "Well, you're you're in these these rocky mountains and stuff. You just drink the water right from the from the river." It's like I'm never doing that. Yeah, even well, if it is snow melted, well, I'm because you have pumping. to be careful of like. Uh, bear crap and beaver crap and like all, all that stuff has like parasites i think in it yeah. and stuff um so yeah you got to be careful it doesn't matter where you are i mean if you're in michigan we've been to those spots that's like it's a there's this place off this the manistee river where we go where it's the coldest spring in michigan it literally comes out of the the ground at 32 degrees 33 mm-hmm. degrees temperature i mean you could stand in this thing and you feel like your feet are ice blocks within minutes yeah um but uh yeah I, unless it's one of those i i don't think you should even i'd still it. be apprehensive i'd still be pumping out of that i mean why not if you have the thing i, I yeah you get sick out in the woods you're gonna have a real well, issue on your hand i even saw what's that other show that used to be on called like dual survival where it's like two people surviving together and that one time they found like an old bleach carton that had like a tiny bit of bleach and supposedly if you put like a pin drop of bleach per whatever that also mm. can kill all the the bacteria so interesting so it's just like scary but interesting well yeah well who wants to do that but if you're in a survival situation and that's you know that's like when they have these shows they'll have them like find this or that and then have them you know use it to their advantage in different ways so well, i saw bear grills like squeezing uh i don't know if it was elephant dung or it was some kind of poo he was drinking the liquids from that. I, I hey, wild. Yeah, that's like a whole nother level of desperation, I think. <laughs> though. I think that's the, you're yeah. at the point where you're in like a desert or some sort of Serengeti or something, and you don't have access to any kind of water. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, that sounds terrible. Not fun. So that's a cool new uh, find there. Yeah, I think as time goes on, we're just going to keep finding more and more information about ancient civilizations and all the perceptions that we have on them. We like to label these people as fools, but as time goes on, we start to see the, they, they knew way more than we, we, we gave well, we credit don't for. label them as I would suggest well, that, that we don't. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that, yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing too. It's like, you know, um, all these, as you mentioned, there's always going to be these like new paradigms and new discoveries and stuff like that. So, um, the more we learn, we're, the more we're going to learn that, these people are most likely similar to us. I mean, the only thing that we have, I think that separates us from ancient times is like computers and technology and that kind of stuff. I mean, even you look at some of the ancient wisdoms and like Proverbs and all that kind of stuff. And it's even more advanced than what people are, you know, their thought processes used to this day. You know, you look at like the philosophies and the way that people were thinking back then, and maybe it wasn't a lot of people, but 
the fact that there were people thinking on that level that we don't even have those people today. So well, we can only study the stuff that's out there too. And we've, we've seen shows that like project a thousand years in the future and what would actually be around still. And most of, most of the stuff that we create would just crumble anyway. So it would be hard to, to you're saying, that on. And you're saying that's if everything was destroyed, those shows where it's like if humans yeah. left the planet tomorrow or whatever, that's what you're talking about. Right. Or right. Like everybody got wiped out by a comet or something. Yeah. Um, so here's a, uh, an article on the new Aboriginal rock art discovered. So archaeologists found ancient a- uh, Aboriginal rock art that appears to depict humans and animals living in harmony. Uh, they dubbed the style, which is new to researchers, uh, Mali Wawa, which was named after the place where it was found. Um, archaeologists have dated the art from 9,400 years ago to as recent as 6,000 years ago. They claim this art style bridges the gap between previous art found from 12,000 years ago to the art that's found 4,000 years ago. Um, the message of this art appears to be humans and, and uh, animal relationships, and it contains the oldest depiction of the marine animal, uh, marine animal known as the dugong, I believe is how it's pronounced. So I think that that's a, like a manatee-type marine hmm. mammal, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this art is large scale and some are even life size. So I think they vary, they said in size, but, um, some of them are pretty large. So, um, we've talked a little bit about Aboriginal rock art before. Um, and, uh, it's interesting. I think that they, you know, you find some of those ancient handbags that we've talked a lot about many times that are found all over civilizations across the world since the beginning of, you know, cave art and, uh, hieroglyphs and um, relief carvings and whatever else. Um, so when you look at the oldest ones like that and then you see this progression, obviously Australia has crazy biodiversity and a lot of the animals and mammals found there are a lot different than ones you'd find in most other parts of the world. So Yeah. Um, and they were obviously really in tune with nature. and um, Yeah, so that's an interesting one for sure. Um, well, if there's any animal that we were going to connect with, I think the uh, the marine mammals, the dolphins, yeah, the dungong, the manatees, the manatees, those would be the ones that are closest to human, I think, right? Um, they have languages and stuff, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I I would say so. I mean, we talked a lot about obviously from the review we did on uh, my octopus teacher, how intelligent octopuses are. And uh, I think when you look at other marine mammals, I think the same could probably be said if there's, you know, I don't know. I've never, I've, you know, seen some manatees in, in like the zoo and stuff like that before, but I don't, obviously I've never encountered one in the wild and I don't know that much about them. I know that some people in the past have mistaken them for like mermaids and, that kind of a thing, but um, let's see here. Uh, let's go to the next one, which also I believe has to do with uh, Aboriginal sites. Okay, so ancient Aboriginal sites found underwater. So archaeologists in Australia have found uh, ancient sites underwater. Researchers suggest the coast would have extended out 100 miles from where it is today at the end of the last ice age. Um, 
Two sites were found off northwestern Australia. One in Cape Brugier's Channel, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, contained artifacts that are at least 7,000 years old. Uh, At the second site, the Flying Foam Passage, they found a single artifact that is roughly uh, 8,500 years old. Um, they're trying to get legislation passed to protect and preserve these sites from, uh, for further research. So this one's interesting because um, when you talk about the land bridge, you know, Sundaland that connected uh-huh. Australia to Indonesia and um, at possibly even as su- or even as recent as the Younger Dryas era, um, you start looking at some of these other things, like obviously this is possible that people were getting back and forth through the land bridge. Um, and if they're finding stuff at 7,000, 8,500 years old, and this is probably right off the coast too, so they're probably finding this stuff not even that deep of water. Um, if they're trying to preserve it through laws and legislation, hopefully they, they get to some of the deeper spots or maybe the harder to reach spots and maybe they can find something even older. Yeah, I don't think they should have a problem getting legislation on this, right? I mean, yeah, who knows? Well, isn't the whole world up up in arms about preserving the oceans yeah, and things no, like no, that? Yeah, no, no, so. you're right, but I mean, you'd be surprised when, you know, people that have millions to be made or lost or whatever. Right. Yeah, you know, that usually dictates things, you know, or makes well, things complicated at least. What's going on with the Great Barrier Reef there? Isn't there an issue? Uh, I think, um... Let's see... Yeah, there isn't. Well, corals definitely uh, having some issues. Coral reefs. I know some of them are dying. What did I see? Something about like um, because the warmer temperatures, stuff like that. Oh, some okay. of the warmer sea level or a warmer uh, seas have some sort of effect on coral reefs. So, I mean, who knows what's going to happen there? I don't know enough about coral, but I do know. Like I said, that money talks, and it just because something is noble and will help figure out our past or the ancient past or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a given that that's going to happen. So, so I just typed in the threats to the barrier reef and climate change, the growing combination of raising water temperatures, poor water quality, and sediment runoff of and pollution are mm. causing, uh, yeah, massive harm to these. Yeah, I want to say, did I see bleach or something? Like bleach has some negative effect too. I don't know. But yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. But yeah, but It also get... says severe cyclones and crowns of thorns, starfish outbreaks. Oh, so I'm sure sounds, there's like there's invasive species. Yeah, I'm sure there's like multiple layers of stuff going on with, with all that. I don't think it's probably just one thing or another. It's probably multiple things happening at once. So, so. I really got to learn how to scuba dive soon here. Yeah, if that was your your dream to scuba dive at the Great Barrier Reef, then you're you're gonna. That's a bucket list item. Okay, well, all right, all right. So this one was interesting. Um, they found a vitrified brain intact at uh, Herculaneum. Um, so the brain cells of a young man who died in the 79 AD eruption of Mount Vesuvius were found intact by a team of Italian researchers. The remains were found in the 1960s in Herculaneum, uh, which also covered 
it was also that the city of Herculaneum was also covered in ash during the eruption of 79 AD. Most people just know Vesuvius is the most famous, but the, obviously the volcano had an impact on the region. Uh, researchers found the man face down on a wooden bed. Um, in 2018, um, one of the researchers discovered some glassy material shining in the skull. He asserted in a recent uh, paper that the brain was vitrified due to intense heat followed by rapid cooling. Um, the person's brain was initially liquefied and then turned into a glassy substance upon cooling. They found nerve cells in the spine, and he says that the temperature must have reached roughly 930 degrees Fahrenheit or 500 degrees Celsius. So that's kind of crazy that they found actual uh, vitrified brain matter in this uh, ancient Italian guy's skull. Yeah, that'd be a sweet uh, coffee table little piece. What? If you could get this thing displayed what, what in your you home. Ta- what are you talking about? You think that's going in somebody's... You're crazy. <laughs> and you're sick. Who would even want that? Actually, and I've, I've... This is a thing. Some woman recently, I think I read an article, she took a piece of something from Pompeii, and she's had yeah. like... she She's been cursed. Like She's had cancer a couple times. People in her family have died. All this stuff. So she like wanted to return this thing back to Pompeii. So I know you're joking around, but... If that if somebody ever people collect all kinds of crazy stuff and the rarer it is the better you know yeah and I'm just telling you that there might be some energy if you believe if you believe what you say you believe like about energy and vibrations and stuff like that that's that's it's gonna come back at you all right so Mm -hmm. I'm just saying but yeah that's uh, it's crazy to even find are they like are they putting that in a museum of some sort or um, I'm sure. Yeah. Like I said, it's not like this. You just, you're, I know, again, I know you were joking, but like that, that would not go in somebody's house. I don't know. Um, all right. Moving on. <laughs> Jesus. We got, uh, you can tell it's getting close to Halloween because Maurice is becoming more morbid by the day. Um, why do Egyptian statues have broken noses? Um, so this one's kind of new and kind of old. One of the articles I read was more recent, but this has been out there for a while. Um, why do so many statues and carving figures of ancient Egyptian uh, or Egyptian antiqu- antiquity have missing or broken noses? Uh, Adela Oppenheim, the curator in the Department of the Egyptian Art and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, says that the statues uh, had a life force um, and opposing powers would destroy the source of breath, which was the nose. Um, mm. So it, it was common for ancient Egyptians to perform ceremonies on the statues, like the opening of the mouth ritual, where they would um, anoint the statues with oils and hold up objects. Um, so basically, they're saying, you know, the Egyptians had a reverence for these, or had reverence for these statues, and they're obviously their kings and leaders and pharaohs and. Uh, all that stuff. So when you broke the nose, you killed the power that the statue had. Not, and, it, and I don't think the Egyptians obviously didn't believe that these were like, had a real life force, but just that there's some power, whether it be um, just a symbol, you know, or whatever it may be, these, these things had held a power. So 
the ancient Egyptians didn't, yeah, again, didn't actually think they were alive, but they believed that they held some sort of power. Uh, to disable these powers, the enemies would kill the life force by breaking off the nose, but then sometimes they take it too far. They break off arms and legs and destroy other parts of the statue. Um, you can look to, like, Akhenaten was erased from the records for believing in one god and monotheism. Uh, Hatshepsut, I don't even know, I, I keep mispronouncing her name, statues and records were erased by her co-regent, the Third who was the son of Hatshepsut's uh, deceased husband, Tutmos II. Um, she was the second female pharaoh in Egyptian history. Uh, the thought was that Tutmos III, at the end of his life, had her erased to show a clear line um, from Tutmos II to Tutmos III. So, um, so the history's all whacked. Yeah, well... So she was actually considered a good leader and a good pharaoh. Um, and since Tutmos III was so young, they needed her to help rule and lead. And then when he became old enough towards the end of his life, he's like, well, let's just erase her from the books. Um, which, again, is not uncommon. And you look at like Akhenaten. And when you believe something that the next person doesn't uphold or believe, there's a good chance that you're not, your, your memory is not going to be lasting much longer. Yeah, that's that's it. Um, but I mean, it depends on, um, I guess what dynasty and what time period and stuff. Because I do know, obviously, a lot of stuff's well preserved too. So it just depends on the situation. All right, moving on. Okay, sticking with the uh, ancient Egyptian theme here for the next couple ones. Uh, 13 sealed ancient Egyptian coffins found. So 13 wooden coffins dating back 2,500 years were found in the desert necropolis in Saqqara, Egypt. Uh, the dry tomb complex stayed intact for millennia, helping preserve the wood coffins, and some even still have the paint on them, the original paint on them. Uh, Saqqara used to be the necropolis for Memphis when it was the capital of ancient Egypt. Uh, the experts are saying that there were that these coffins contain people that were working or middle class uh, and they have not identified them by their names yet um, they also mentioned that there could be more coffins and artifacts found at this site so the site was like very dry um, there was a few different like layers protecting it so um, they said it was very well preserved compared to other sites that are similar mm. but I mean you know when you look at all that kind of stuff <laughs> we did that that magical Egypt, or not magical Egypt, uh, uh, after, what was that, Egypt Live, that's what we yeah. were, so when Egypt Live was like, they unveiled um, one of the high priests of Thoth, I think was one of the people that they found, um, but when we did that afterwards, uh, that actually, that episode is probably one of our, high, our more watched episodes by random people, just because it like got trending or whatever, so like our, our normal fans, you know, we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. There's a lot of people that weren't happy with all the stuff that we were talking about with like, uh, Zayuas and all that kind of stuff. But cause I guess a lot of people love them, even though there's a lot of people in the alternative and people even in the, uh, even academia that are not huge fans based on some of the stuff that he's done. So, um, it's just one of those things where, uh, I think that, 
when you look at these unveilings and stuff like that, I, I, I don't know if they should do the live thing. It just felt like staged or cheesy yeah, or something. I think right? that we came to that conclusion that there was, yeah, we a, did. There was a level and, of stage. Yeah. Like write a nice thing about it, put all the pictures out, do some sort of unveiling or whatever. But I think the whole, when you do like the live thing with, you know, I did, what was it? Josh Gates was the, from uh-huh. expedition unknown. That was the, it just felt weird. I don't know. Well, that's what we see in a lot of the apparent live TV today. The stuff's scripted and yeah, it's controlled. Yep. All right. So e- ancient Egyptian papyri ink contained lead. Uh, researchers analyzing 12 ancient Egyptian papyri fragments with x-ray uh, microscopy found that the ink contained lead. Researchers believe that the red and the uh, black ink uh, that was used and the uh, the pop the papyri that they found lead uh, with lead uh, the lead wasn't used for the ink uh, for like the pigmentation or anything the lead was actually used as part of the drying process so now they're going to look into more of these techniques because it's found also in I think 15th century Europe by painters where using lead paint uh, helped the drying process maybe even helped preserve it more or something like that. Um, and the researchers also said that the temple priests did not make the ink themselves. They, you know, it, it was a well-known technique for the time. So they either advised they people or, or had other people. Do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something like that. So, um, yeah, that was, we'll move on from, uh, ancient Egypt here. I think that was the last one on ancient Egypt. This one's interesting. So again, this is kind of an old discussion thing, but there's there was a recent art, uh, article um, on them and uh, or on it, and it's could ancient people see the color blue? So there is evidence that suggests mm. people could not see the color blue in ancient times. Most humans cur- are currently able to see roughly one million colors or like different pigmentations, uh, or I mean, you know, different variations. Uh, in the 1800s, scholar William Gladstone noticed that in the Odyssey by Homer, he describes the ocean as dark, uh, wine dark, and other hues. Um, so, I mean, just think about that. Why would you describe the ocean as wine dark? Yeah, isn't isn't that know. a weird... I mean, even on like a stormy night, it's still like a really dark blue, right? Yeah, to my eyes. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So um, going through, you know, the Odyssey, that was something that they picked out. And then somebody named Lazarus uh, Geiger, who was was, um, a philologist, which is a philologist is somebody that studies languages, researched this idea further and analyzed ancient Icelandic, ancient Hindu, ancient Chinese, uh, Arabic, and Hebrew texts to see if they used a name for the color. And he found none of them mentioned blue. Um the Egyptians were actually the first civilization in the world uh, to have a word for the color. Um, they were the only known culture that could produce blue dyes. Um, from there, the awareness of the color spread throughout the modern world. So um, psychologist Jules Davidoff uh, and his team worked with the Himba tribe from uh, Namibia, And in their language, there is no word for the, the color blue. And there's no real distinction between uh, green and blue. So they sh- I was reading the article, and they show these pictures, these these tests that they gave these people, and um, it had like a like a 
uh, it was like a clock, like almost had like a bunch of, like almost in this formation of a circle or a clock. And there was just different templates of blue. And then there was one green put in there. Um, and supposedly through the tests, they weren't able to distinguish the blue from the green since they don't have a word for the color blue. So I found that was kind of interesting. Um, so, I mean, this is one to like ponder. So, um, without an ancient word for, you know, blue, did it exist? Like, was it actually there? And what does that even say about reality? So if you don't have a word for something, um, yeah, you could create a word for it or whatever, but it's got to be like mutually shared between people. So, and this is a, uh, philosophical debate that's happened too in the past where it's like, is what I see is red, the same thing as your red. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Oh, we've seen that with those online little tests about the dress and things like that. Oh yeah, 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 and yeah, and they do it with like like sounds too. Like yeah. Um. So, you know, what does that actually mean to for our senses? Like, if you obviously the sky is blue or what we call blue, but if somebody didn't know that, like, it's just hard to think about, right? Like. Try and think about it through the eyes of somebody who wouldn't know what blue is. It's almost impossible. That's that's an interesting thing, and it also makes me wonder, what did people hear back then? Like, you know, is it were colors part of the evolution process? Where maybe maybe we started in black and white, and as time grew, we more and more colors came into our vision. That could be the same thing with the hearing. I think they can probably. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the the evolution or the history of the eyeball but i would imagine that they've probably i'm not saying debunked that but i would imagine that you would know if that was a thing the whole black and white initially i don't know just my opinion but um because i think that they can tell um not that there's any eyeballs left over from Again, right. being a little morbid, but there's no eyeballs left over from 20,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not even just the eyeball. It's the eyeball connected to the brain. No, I know, I know. But like I said, I think it has more to do with the actual word. So like giving a t something a term or like a word or adding a title to something, I think that solidifies it. It's like it's like real magic. You know, you, you identify something and call it what it is and it brings it into existence kind of a thing. Yeah, and to me, blue's my favorite color, so hypothetically speaking, if there right. was no blue, Imagine a world suck. with no blue, though. I mean, even looking at my computer screen right now as we talk live on this podcast, most of everything on there is blue right now. Same thing with my landscape photography. I love taking pictures of water, and that, I don't know, I also love blue, so I try and have my colors in the in my photos because that's what I gravitate towards. But right. that's, 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 that's an interesting one, man. I like that little, little tidbit. Well, and again, we could talk about this all night. I just think it's, it's something where I'd like to see more, more scientific data on this. I want to know what like somebody that um, studies like the evolution of eyes has to say about it or something like that. Yeah. I would also like to get more information about people who are colorblind yeah, my see, like, my dad's colorblind. My dad, really. <laughs> growing up, he'd have like a maroon and like a blue sock on, and not know that <laughs> that was, or have like a a black sock and a blue sock on the other foot. Like that's, I mean, so his is more like darker shades like that. Yeah. Um. He's not well, fully I mean, but you bring up a good point though. too. Like maybe some people were colorblind, or maybe that was something we evolved out of, or something like that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely weird to think about. 
if anybody has more information or a link to more information, yeah. please leave it below. Well, you know, obviously when we do these shows, I don't know everything. Maurice definitely doesn't know everything. So, wow. well, I mean, we got to, we, we got to call a spade a spade here. We just get, we just have to, you know, let the people know that if you know more information, please send it to us. And obviously we're very open-minded. So of course, um, we're not trying to be right. Well, no, that's what the foundation of the podcast is, is getting the information that's already out there, out there. And then, right. uh, we can build from that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Clovis tool uh, only used for three. So the Clovis tools supposedly were only used for three hundred years. So researchers have recently published a new paper regarding the dating of the Clovis civilization. So you might have heard if you follow our show, we talk obviously a lot about like Graham Hancock and his work and some of the alternative researchers. Um, and uh, the idea of Clovis, the Clovis first civilization, is that um, people came over uh, from Beringia or over the Bering uh, land bridge roughly 15,000 years ago. And those were the first people into America, both North and South America. And that's what a lot of archaeologists believed until recently. So starting the, the tide's starting to turn a little, uh, but you still have people grasping at, at this Clovis fur still for whatever reason, which is beyond me. Cause I think it's, while I know there's scientific method and you have to go through the process and hypothesis and then theory and all that stuff. I do think that it's very short sighted at this point with all the data out there to, to think that only that North America and South America were land or, you know, so out of the realm that people could have gotten there just to, you know, 15,000 years ago. That's nothing. That's nothing. So somebody didn't float over on a man-made boat or whatever. It's just, that sounds crazy to me, but whatever. Well, it's a lot of these older people that hold the power and it's almost the same thing with, you know, with cannabis. Everybody's clinging to these, these old laws and old thought processes. And as soon as, as the younger people come into power and the younger, you know, scientists and researchers start to to bubble up, I'm sure a lot of these things will be changed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the researchers tested and dated bones and artifacts that showed Clovis tools, uh, were used from 13,050 to roughly 12,750 BC. Uh, that's only a 300 year period where Clovis tools and spears were used. So 300 years is nothing for supposedly this first people in America, you would think if it was the first peoples of America 15,000 years ago that they had been using the Clovis for a while, the Clovis tools for a while, or, um, you know, had used them for a long period after they got here. That, that would just be, if that was the case, that's what I would think. But now that we know that it's only a 300 year period based on all the, the data, um, and the stone tools that are found, then, I mean, that's, that's nothing. Yeah. But people, people, you know, as humans, we also evolve fast now. So what we were doing 300 years ago was nothing near what we're doing now. So, I mean, I, you could look at it like that too. I guess it just depends on how you want to look at it. Um, the samples that they use were, uh, that they dated were from South Dakota, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Virginia, Montana, um, and then two sites in Oklahoma and, and two in Wyoming. Um, 
the researchers noted that the Clovis people showed up 300 years before the demise of the megafauna. So they're saying that, I know in, in the paper it's almost suggesting that, so we know about the younger Dryas uh, impact hypothesis and how that comes into play with the megafauna and all that. But they're saying that maybe the introduction of these Clovis tools was the downfall of the megafauna, the, you know, woolly mammoths and mastodon, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of what they're saying. So I think they're still trying to protect that, that, that they're holding on to that idea. Yeah. They're just, they don't, a lot of people don't want to believe that it's possible that there was a comet or asteroid impact 12,000 or, uh, you know, back then. Yeah. It's laughable. So, uh, yeah, researchers and authors like Graham Hancock and even Dr. Gregory Little, who we've had on the show before, who wrote, uh, co-authored uh, Denisovan Origins, has been saying for years that the idea of Clovis people were the first peoples in America is absolutely nonsense. New archaeological finds and data show that the Clovis first paradigm is at best outdated. Um, there is a 15,000-year-old site in Idaho that they found, um, so that one still fits into the Clovis kind of the Cactus Hill uh, in Virginia is between 16 and 20,000 years old, which pushes that obviously back that 20,000 year old date. And then the one that they point to um, as like the Clovis first model would be the Monte Verde in Chile, which has a range, by the way, of 15,000 to 33,000 years old, but they lean heavy on the 15,000 and sometimes it creeps up to like the 16, 17 based on stuff that I've read. Um, and, but they're most recently, and this will go to the next slide, is they found uh, evidence of people living in uh, caves in the mountains in Mexico that date back to 30,000 years ago. So, and we'll go there now. Well, 15 to 33 is a big swing. Well, that's what the dating, the deeper levels shows possibly 33,000. So that's why... Um, Again, they'll always err on the side of whatever the lower number is when it comes to this kind of stuff. They'll never push the timeline if it, unless they actually have hard evidence that 100% backs that up. Yeah. Um, humans in Mexico uh, 30,000 years ago, question mark. Uh, hmm. uh, archaeologists excavating, I, I don't know how to pronounce this, Chi, uh, Chiquihuite, I think Chiquihuite, cave in the mountains of central Mexico have discovered evidence that people lived in the area more than 30,000 years ago. So, um, they found hard evidence too. They found roughly 2000 stone tools and 239 of those were embedded in gravel, uh, that was carbon dated to between 25,000 to 32,000 years ago. Um, so I mean, when you just look at that, so now the thing here's where the skeptics come in. So the skeptics in the article said that, okay, so you found the 2000 stone tools and some of these were other sites in the area that they combined to, uh, but 239 of them were found embedded in gravel. So some of the earlier archeologists and anthropologists who were commenting on the articles are saying they're skeptical and they're saying that like an animal in the cave could have pushed these tools deeper into the layers of sediment or burrowed or pushed them down in there. Um, so, I mean, is that possible? I guess, but I guess, you know, when you look at the situation, it's 239 of them though. I mean, that's kind of a lot. Yeah. It's not like I, one I or two, possible, you know, it's not like they found but... one in like a lower sediment and they're like, Oh, 30,000 years ago, it's 239. 
So, I mean, yeah. Uh, the team leader, Cyprian Ardelian, Ardelian, uh says he is an advocate for lost groups. So the the guy that ran this excavation was saying that he believes that just because there was people there doesn't mean that those people were part of further evolution, meaning that whoever lived there could have just died out, but still, you know, if existed. So people could have existed there and then not been part of like the evolution of humanity to where we are today. So if you're talking like genetics and stuff like that, it's possible that some of these, you know, groups of people didn't make it through um, and then were just not part of the tree going forward. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's just, again. Some info getting thrown out there. Okay, so we just recently did the episode on Easter Island um, a couple episodes ago. Check that out, Easter Island Part 3. Um, so this is something that recently came up. Um, researchers have found that the Moai carved from volcanic site of Ranu Raraku uh, may have helped enrich the soil. So we've showed you the extinct volcano and the the quarry on Easter Island in that episode. I pull up a ton of pictures of Ranu Raraku um, and that whole, you know, there's still even a Moai that's still stuck in the volcanic tuff in the side of the, uh, um, the quarry there. Uh, but they're saying that the, the minerals that were in those Moai helped enrich the soil. So, uh, the chemical analysis of the soil near the quarry showed high levels of calcium and phosphorus, which would help plant growth and create high yields. Um, everywhere else on the island has worn out soil that's devoid of necessary minerals. Researchers suggest that the moai could have been overlooking gardens. That's another theory that this person was mentioning in the um, article, but I think that the mythology correlating... Uh, the significance of the Moai and why they look inwards and only seven look outwards, which are the seven scouts found at Ahu Akivi. I think that that's probably has more to do with the history and the culture of the Rapa Nui people. So that's just my opinion. And less of practical people thinking about having some sort of crazy garden uh, scarecrow type thing. Yeah. Um, if this is true, then that wouldn't uh, the um, the wouldn't the gold. This was my question: is if this was true, wouldn't the good soil uh, be more dispersed from the mudslides that supposedly covered the moai? So we've talked about that the deforestation and then the possible mudslides. So there's different theories on why the moai, especially around Ranu Raraku, have are so covered up to their you know necks. Like some people just think that on Easter Island that there's just heads. They don't know that those are whole structures or whole bodies like well, they should at this point well but you would think so but most people don't i mean if you look online most people search for like you know easter island heads you know that's what they think or they've looked at a pink floyd poster before you know something like yeah. that uh but yeah there's a full body there and they go down pretty deep and they're usually covered and there's people arguing whether that sediment was caused from like mudslides and um erosion or is that caused by um you know, just so, so long of a period of time that it's accumulated that much sediment, you know? So like, that's the, the argument going back and forth there. But, um, I would say that, but my question about there, so if, if this whole point about this, these 
moai spreading these minerals throughout the area, then if there was mudslides or whatever, then why would some of the mud be, you know, devoid of the necessary minerals if it's being spread out like that? That would that's just my point there. Yeah, well, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love to ask some of these people that write these articles these questions. <laughs> Let me ask you some common sense questions, folks. <laughs> All right, moving on. Oh, I did. Okay, so. Somebody, a couple people commented after our Easter Island Part 3 episode about, I talked about the genetics and how they, the recent study with the genetics having to do with pre-Columbian um, Native American genetics that are, are found uh, in the Rapa Nui people. So um, there's the correlation like of megalithic sites that Thor Heyerdahl made, which is what I'm bringing up here, which uh, at the top there on the left and the right, you have Easter Island uh, and that's Ahu Vinapu, um, and those are basalt blocks. So those those top two, that's basalt, and that's on Easter Island. And then mm-hmm. the bottom two is Sacsayhuaman in Peru, and they're so dry stone walls are stone walls that have been put together with no mortar, like there's no filler in between. Um, and they're cut, the ones at Sacsayhuaman are not uh, basalt blocks; they're andesite, diorite, and limestone. So. And they're polygonal. So when you look at the top ones, they do look kind of, even though they're not really polygonal and they're made of a different type of rock, they actually look kind of similar, in my opinion, and other people's opinions. And Thor Heyerdahl made the point that if people were getting around, like he proved with Kontiki and all that stuff, that there might have been some influence from Peru or Chile or whatever, um, and people might have gotten to Easter Island, so... Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and Shermanator makes a good point that the uh, that those walls hide older structures. So there are again, there's older structures. So like when you learn about or you look at Easter Island, uh, little's known about like these kinds of walls. You don't ever hear about that that much. So it's not like something that's like made to be a big deal, but it is kind of interesting because um, you look at the other walls that are around Easter Island and they're like sea walls. It's kind of like sloppy cyclopean masonry with like littler rocks and then you have um you have uh like the ahus which i mean are kind of i guess kind of look like a thin you know it's like the altar for the moai and those kind of look similar i guess maybe like cut down a little bit but um yeah and they don't again they don't i don't know where they i don't think they know where the basalt came from around easter island there's been suggestions that jacques Cousteau found possibly the basalt quarry that would have been off the coast there, so. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to bring this diagram up because people did mention it when we did that episode, and uh, I didn't add it in there, which I should have, because it is a good uh, correlation there. All right, so the new Nazca lines geoglyph. So, um, a geoglyph depicting a cat or a feline was recently found in southern Peru. Uh, it has roughly been dated to 2,000 years old. Um, it extends roughly 121 feet across, so that's pretty big. Um, when it was found, the figure was barely visible uh, and about to be lost to erosion. Um, the Nazca lines over 175 uh, square mile, or over 175 square miles, um, are dated to be between 500 BC and 500 AD. So, um, we've talked about the Nazca lines, I think, a while back. We haven't really talked about it recently, but um, 
it's interesting when you look at how those it's like almost like a difference in um the sediment like so they when they draw them out like the layer underneath shows a different color so it's kind of cool um but yeah I, we could probably do an episode on that in the future because we really haven't talked about it recently yeah and it's a real interesting subject um let's see here and as the shermanator uh, mentioned the cat is found on similar sites in the area too so um I don't know what kind of cat would that be like an ocelot or like a jaguar maybe a lynx yeah I don't know about a lynx I think that one is the lowest on the, the pole of vicious cats you know what I'm saying yeah but I don't know could be all right so here we go baby this one's for Maurice. <laughs> uh, cannabis found preserved in India's Ellora Caves. So the Ellora Caves were built in between the 6th and the 11th centuries AD. Um, I'm sure if people follow like megalithic sites and stuff, you've seen them. They're carved out of uh, these, you know, rock quarries or these walls and carved. they were carved into. Um, and these caves and structures were dedicated to Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism. Um so researchers found that builders of the caves used cannabis to mix into the plaster uh, to make it stronger and more durable. Uh, researchers suggest that this mixture has played a role in preserving this UNESCO site, uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, from decay over the last 1,500 years. Um, so they're saying that like the fibers and the sticky properties of cannabis helped bind uh, to the clay, making it stronger than you know other mixes. They called it hempcrete. Um, so this one's interesting because, I mean, it brings up, I mean, hemp is used for so many different purposes and it's so strong and so easy to produce that makes you wonder why aren't we, you know, utilizing this? I mean, we well, kind of are, but we know why, cause they don't well, they yeah, want to yeah, use but, cotton right. stuff like that. But yeah. And the D when they invented the decorticator and all that, yeah, we know the whole, the whole William Randolph first and all that kind of stuff. So um so that's kind of what we're we're you know dealing with here but at the same time it's like in the ancient times because i know even india is very strict with like cannabis and i think you get in big trouble i don't don't know i'm pretty sure you do um so but if you look at the ancient people were obviously using it and i imagine if they're using it in the plaster they were also using it in you know maybe via during meditation or who knows exploring the mind i wouldn't put you know there's some people well well cannabis and hemp are different well right no i know but i mean they're not that different if you kind you know because there's some suggestion like i know chris bennett has wrote a few books on this and he's a big advocate of it that soma the ancient soma which is found in um the vedas that uh and also the avestan uh that cannabis actually was what soma was so or hmm possibly you know some aspect of it but if we're talking like so if if it was soma though then they did have knowledge of cannabis and or whatever other derivative hemp or whatever and like you mentioned it's not the same thing but um like i said if if you know i don't know do you know like if if you find hemp in an area is it more likely that you would find cannabis or 
I just know that they're so closely related that they were able to, because, you know, cannabis has psychoactive and drug properties where hemp has, you could smoke it all day and nothing would happen to you. So what else? But they that? wanted to lump it into that so they could call it a drug and then abolish right. it. So I don't know, man. I mean, it's a very complex thing that American, the American government wanted to, wanted to implement. So Widow's son asked, uh, have they ever found preserved psychedelics? Uh, I th- yeah, I mean, they have. There's a thousand-year-old sh- uh, shamanic fox snout pouch that they found last year that contained, like, bufotine, uh, harmala, DMT, uh, cocaine. I mean, they found, like, a whole array of substances in this shaman's pouch. Um, and also... Where was that found? Uh, I think it was found in Peru, if I'm not mistaken. You could probably look that up. Uh but they have also found, I mean, with the Soma thing, they found these pots or this pottery that had like remnants of uh, ephedra, I believe ephedra, uh, cannabis, and opium. So they think that Soma might have been like a combination of all three of those or maybe two of those or something like that. I mean, ephedra is a, um, a, an upper or a stimulant and obviously, um, you, know, you know, we know all know about opium and cannabis so um but yeah so i found that that was kind of interesting i mean i wonder too um if they were doing that back then what other civilizations were doing similar things you know the oldest found psychedelic was uh this off my screen (laughs) Sorry. What preserved psychedelic? Or you're saying from? Like yeah, it was in uh, the southwestern Bolivia. Is that the, what I was talking about? The fox snout yes, pouch. Yes. Yes. Made yeah. from three fox snouts, neatly sewn together. Yeah. So that's that's there you go. Yeah, and even if you look at um, that show Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, he does an episode on five meo DMT, which is comes from Bufo alivaris, which is the uh, Sonoran uh, desert toad. And that the 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 desert toad excretes it from its glands, and then people dry it out and then smoke it. So um, he was saying in that that episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia that he went through like the history of it, and he can only find this manual from like the 1980s where some guy juiced one of these um, toads by accident and touched a cigarette, and then lit the cigarette, and this he had you know a DMT experience. So. Who knows if that's 100% true? And you can look up that episode. That's actually a really good episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, the 5-MeO-DMT one. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that ancient people definitely knew what was going on with psychedelics and uh, pharma, you know, uh, psychoactive compounds found in nature, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the mystery of Stonehenge's, uh, Stonehenge's origin. Uh, the mystery of the origin of Stonehenge's uh, Saracen stones uh, have been ongoing for the last 400 years. Researchers now know that 50 of the 52 Saracen stones came from the Westwood, uh, Westwood site of Wiltshire. It's roughly 25 kilometers north of Stonehenge. So that's not, for those big stones, that's not that close. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit, you got to do a bit of work there. Um, I mean, the Stonehenge things, I don't think it's as big of a mystery in terms of, you know, because I, th- I think we've, they've shown obviously it's possible, but I think when you're carving something that large and dragging it or 
however you're doing it. I mean, I know the Moai, they suggested that if you put two, they've shown actually that you can do this. They've made an exact replica of one of the Moai, and then they take a rope on one side, tie it around the top, and the rope on the other, and then they, like, one guy pulls on one end. Wiggle one guy, it. One guy, yeah, and he, the Moai slowly, like, walks forward. So, obviously, I don't know if other civilizations were utilizing that technique or if they were just dragging them or using um, dollies or, I mean, who knows. Uh, but, yeah, that's not that close. Uh, the team turned to X-ray f- uh, fluorescent spectra- uh, spectrometry, spectrometry uh, to match the stones to the original quarry. Uh, microscopic and macroscopic uh, analysis was not effective because of the amount of quartz. Um, they used a core sample taken in 1958 to match the sample found at the original location. So they used an old sample, uh, an old sample and new techniques to match it to this quarry. So, uh, but if, if 50 of them were found, then what are these other two ones, you know? Yeah. What are these missing two, two stones from? Are they from a different quarry? Are they from the same quarry? Maybe just a different part? What's going on there? I don't know. Um, so that's pretty much all for that. But I mean, looking on the episode tonight, um, do you have any, uh, thoughts on all the stuff that I pulled up? No, oh, I think you did a good job at the presentation. Well, I know I did a good job at the presentation. I asked you, <laughs> that. I asked you what, if you had any thoughts. No, I, I liked it. Um, was there anything like, what was your favorite, uh, article or what was your favorite new discovery? Um, I like the cannabis stuff. <laughs> of course, the one article on cannabis or hemp used as uh, for hempcrete. Um, yeah, I liked the conversation around the whole color thing and did ancient people or could ancient people see the color blue? Obviously, I love all the, the the possible stone formations at the bottom of the Great Lakes and the yeah, I do like the yeah, in Michigan. I yeah, think that's something. Because I live here, obviously, I think there's plenty of exploring I can do. I've, you know, I go on trips every year to Colorado or somewhere out west, but there's a lot of stuff in Michigan that I kind of overlooked and need to sink my teeth into. Yeah, I mean, I'd eventually. I mean, if you want, we could probably, if this thing, whole thing blows over here in the next however long, uh, maybe next summer, do like a Isle Royale type thing. I always that's, want to check. Yeah, that's not close, but yeah. No, I know. If I'm doing a trip, I'm doing a trip. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to half-ass this thing. Right. I think in Isle Royale, there's, it's the most concentration of wildlife in America. Yeah, I think they talked about they've either added more wolves or more wolves have been found there recently or something to help control the other populations. And I know well, wolver- I- wolverines are actually making a comeback too, I think. Yeah, not the football team. <laughs> Actually, I think the football team was ranked number one. <laughs> oh, I mean, okay. I haven't look. I used to be a diehard Detroit and Michigan, sports you know, guy. Michigan sports guy. But since I got into all this podcasting and ancient civilization and the mind and all that stuff, I really haven't focused on any of it at all. So, but yeah, yeah. I never really got into the sports stuff. I, you know, I, I was into the Red Wings, but I don't know. There's something about getting the getting actual knowledge that can you can use in your life and implement you know right well and i mean sports you know they're fun to watch and obviously they help take your mind off things and just help you get into something but at the same time i don't again there's nothing after i watch a bunch of games there's nothing to be gained and i even used to play 
fantasy football, fantasy hockey, know all the players, all the stats, projections, all that kind of, it just gets old after a while. But yeah, I definitely love this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, that whole conversation around the color blue and is it, um, were ancient people uh, able to see it or, you know, do we need words for things to make them real or what's going on there? That's, I think that's the, and I think philosophers have been going back and forth on that kind of stuff for a while. So, yeah, that's a that's a that's a noodle scratcher. And the more in depth you think about it, the more uh, obscure and abstract that becomes. It's that, that's I like that. Right, and you, I mean, you look at ancient Egypt, and they had the, the color blue because they used it in the dyes and stuff like that. So. Um, what was it again? What did the ocean look like to somebody back then? What did the sky look like to somebody back then? I mean, the example was in Homer's Odyssey that he describes the ocean as, you know, wine, dark wine. Like, no, <laughs> you know, so was it like some ancient uh color blindness or you know, what's going on there? Yeah, well, is there any proof that the, the, the water looked the same as it does now? That's the other thing. Right. I mean, and you look at, you know, we're talking about ancient psychedelic use too. Did that help usher in, you know, maybe us observing more of the spectrum? I mean, I see colors and vivid colors under psychedelics that I don't see any other time in, in life. Well, that's a good point. Cause you know, knowing plants and things, they only see a certain amount. They, they only use uh, photoactive radiation par. So they only see like a certain blues and reds. They don't see the full spectrum. Um, so I don't know if plants can do it, then animals might have that same, that same, uh, same brain pattern. I don't dogs only see a certain color. I don't know. I know is either dogs. Or, I think one of them see in black and white. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm sure you could look that up, but, um, yeah, I know that there's obviously different animals can only see certain spectrums. Um, but again, I mentioned, the the scientific article I read said that we're capable of seeing up to a million different variations. The human mind is. Mm. So if that's the case, then why is that somewhat new if they didn't even have the word blue? Or is it just the case that the idea or the concept of that was just given, like the blue sky, it's just part of, it's built into nature, you know? But then that you see that study that that psychologist did um, where that, that tribe from Namibia uh, they were shown blue and green, and since they didn't have a word for um, blue, they could only see the green. You know, so that's a that's a weird one. Yeah. What do you think the most common color is in nature? <sighs> yeah. Is it blue? Because it's just it's the it, vast. It might sky. be. Um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, the sky. I mean, you got to think uh, the horizon above, but it's not blue out every day, and it's not blue everywhere in the world, you know. So I, I don't know. No, but it probably is blue because the sky is absolutely massive, and then all of the water. You know what so I there have? There might be something to that. You know what I have noticed though? When it's when it's blue out here in Chicago, it's really blue. And when I come back home to Michigan and over the summer, and it's nice out, there's like a haze or like a grayness over the sky that there's like a different shade of sky in Michigan. Than here in Chicago, it's like not as clear or something. 
And I mean, I know we grew up near the water. I don't know, if, but I kind of near the water here in Chicago, so I don't know why that would make the difference. Mm. But it just seems like you know when it's so blue that there's like a haze in Michigan. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's that doesn't happen here in Chicago. But well, here in we Chicago, are next to Detroit folks. <laughs> well, uh, you make a good point there too. Maybe industry has something. I didn't even. I wasn't even thinking on that level until you just said that. But that could be the case. Although Chicago has a lot of industry, they too, do. But it, where I'm at, it's a lot further south. Right. So. I mean, I mean, again, it could be the case, but um, I don't know. And but here at night, you see way more stars where you are because we get this like red glow from the edge of the city, so you can't really see many stars in that regard. Well, I think we found our best topic for the day: the blue. (laughs) Yeah, I I like it. It's it's not even one of the newer articles either, the newer finds, but. Um, yeah, but if you guys enjoy these episodes where we go through recent news articles and stuff like that, I like talking about that kind of stuff. So if you like these, leave a comment, um, and, uh, let us know if you like them. Cause we could do like physics ones. We could do, I mean, we could go through, um, there's a, there's a ton of articles out there and that's all I do pretty much on Twitter is find interesting articles I like and I retweet them or comment on them, that kind of thing. So, um, is that it? I think that's it. So tomorrow we will be live at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, we have a guest. And it's going to be an interesting conversation. I think um, sacred geometry and Tai Chi and all that kind of stuff. So check that out. Um, And then I think Friday, if it's not too late for Maurice, might try and do like a Halloween episode where I go through creepy stuff, ancient creepy stuff. So Yeah, and there's no shortage of that. No, so most of it's creepy, so. Um and that's it. So Beautiful. Uh so yeah, check out our website mindescapepodcast.com. You can find all of our links on there. We have a blog, we have videos, we have all of our audio episodes. Um and if you again, if we have five shirts available, Five or six. I don't even know. Five shirts. Six shirts. Okay. And I don't know what sizes we have, but if you're interested, send me an email and we'll try and figure it out. We'll get it to you. Um, If you live out of the United States, it might be a little bit extra money for the shipping, but we can figure that out. Uh, So again, just send me a message and then also go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast for $2 a month. You'll get exclusive content. Also, shout out to Sandy. She keeps pushing for us to do a Discord uh, episode where we chat with our fans. So we're definitely going to try and do that. Oh, that'd be um, so fun, yeah. If you're not on Discord, check out our Discord. It's free. Um, and we're going to do some sort of episode where we talk with our fans. Maybe, probably not this week, but maybe next week. So, And that's pretty much it. Good talking to you. Glad to be back. Yeah, uh, glad your power's back on and glad we got this one in finally. And uh, we love everybody. Stay safe out there and uh, we'll catch you guys tomorrow live. Cheers. Cheers.